Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Kantar, the world's leading marketing data and analytics company, and Side Business School, University of Oxford. In each episode, we speak with marketing leaders and share insights to help brands and business leaders navigate the ever-changing marketing landscape and hopefully dispel some myths and misconceptions along the way. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Nikki Morley, Head of Behavioural Science and Innovation Expertise at Cantar, and I'm your host today. Today I'm speaking to uh, Dan Bennett, who's partner and lead of the UK Behavioural Science Practice at Ogilvy. Welcome, Dan. Lovely to see you again, Nikki. Lovely to see you. Now, it's great that we have this partnership where we work together to bring the best of insights and creativity to behavioural science problems. Now, this is the second part of my discussions with our partners at Ogilvy. In our first podcast, we chatted to Rory Sutherland about the need for behavioural science and the challenges of bringing it to the businesses. Today, Dan and I are going to unpack the more practical side of behavioural science with some examples and how to unlock the magic. Firstly, Dan, tell me about your role and what you do. It's lovely to uh, speak to you today. So I lead the behavioural science practice at Ogilvy. I've been there for 11 years. Um, the behavioural science practice sits within Ogilvy Consulting. And um, essentially, we work across insights, ideas and innovations and interventions and bring to life that deep human insight into all different realms of, of what Ogilvy does and beyond. Behavioural science is sort of been elevated you know we've been chatting about this before so been elevated to a separate thing that people do rather than what i would consider its true purpose which is to sort of elevate and open the new lenses on the great work that's already done in marketing and innovation why do you think that is dan and, and how might we be able to overcome this so I'd say kind of applied behavioral science has been going for about a decade now i think on, on kind of on kind of mess and um and we're i think we are getting to the point now we're making a lot of progress, but we're still sometimes at a point where, and this is kind of bastardizing a another phrase, but we're using behavioral science like a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. <laughs> I love it. And, I love it. So sometimes we are, the best use of behavioral science, I think, is to inspire creative thinking and to show people more ways of how to do something. Like people often think that behavioral science is kind of the enemy of creativity. It's the police policeman of ideas can say yes this one no not that one but actually the best way to use behavioral science really is to show people um, how many more ways something can be done how many more levers you could pull to change someone's mind or change their behavior and by thinking about behavioral science in that divergent way rather than the conversion way 
we can often come up with answers to sticky questions that that no one else can because they they're not seeing the world through this lens of how people really work. You know, in the same way that you design a human chair to fit the human body, you should design communications interventions to 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 um, fit the human mind. And we have this bad habit, I think, of we often talk about. I think behavioral scientists have often believe. They need to be they need to be really in charge and really ahead of things in order to kind of show their worth. But ultimately, I think behavioral science is the missing seat at the table, but it really shouldn't be the only seat at the table. And um, because we work much better in concert with other areas of expertise, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but occasionally we do we do try and work in isolation. I think it's kind of is a way of proving our worth. We know we should kind of isolate the variable to show the impact, but actually we really shouldn't be isolating the variable. We should be learning how to work with all the other expertise that's out there already. So by having this new lens, we need to realize that it is just that. It's it's a lens, not not the full answer. And I think that that's the reason why it's important that we think about, that we advance in the way that we think about applying behavioral science ultimately. I think that's a great thought about that sort of missing seat at the table rather than the only seat at the table. And and I sometimes think sort of certain behavioral scientists sort of don't help themselves at times. We know... And, and sometimes, like you say, they've, they've gone off and they've, you know, a client might have employed a sort of behavioral science to do something and a couple of nudges have been suggested where really they come back and they say, well, I didn't really get the full impact of that. And I think sort of from my perspective, it's often because it's not built on strong insight foundation as well. You need to have that strong insight. You need to have that connectedness to make it work. Yeah. And we're kind of detectives, not calculators. We, we, did, a, we did a project with Gatwick Airport, which is still after 11 years, the favorite project we've ever done, which was ultimately to look at um, how do you get people to pack correctly those little liquids that you have to take through airport security. And um, and you would think that um, it would be a fairly easy task to do, but people are tired. They're often coming from many places around the world. They're in a rush and they've totally forgotten. And sometimes they don't know that a cream is a liquid. And there's a million reasons why um, you wouldn't pack your liquids correctly. And if you get that wrong, you um, essentially have slower queues. They have the, it's a worse experience for the passenger, and any minute spent in the queue is not a minute spent in duty free. So there's kind of loss of revenue on both sides. So the idea is that we get people through safely, through security as fast as possible, but without compromising any, any of the, the safety parts. And so you think it's a fairly simple behavior change. Um, but that was not a problem that you can solve by taking out a simple mind space framework and, and, and having to think around it. We had to get into that deep human insight. And we did lots of interesting uh, mixed methods approach, qualitative, qualitative, spending time at the airport, all times of the day, interviewing people, observing people um, to try and figure out what is it about looking at all the data they have to figure out why people don't pack their liquids correctly. And um, what we found out is that people fall into three camps if they get it wrong. It's they don't know, they don't remember, or they don't care. So it kind of fits into those three different areas. And um, what they thought the problem was, what they suspected the problem was, without deep human insight, was that it was Italian and French people were the biggest offenders. Um, And we ran all the data in all the ways we did all the stone turning and couldn't find a single piece of evidence that French and Italian people were any different than than those of other other countries of origin. What we did see is that when French and Italian people were pulled over, 
when the, you know your suitcase goes through the scanner and then that kind of arm of death separates it to the back channel and you know you're going to have to be inspected, that horrible moment, is that they, they actually do react culturally just a bit more bigger than and a bit more memorably and a bit more angrily than, um, than, than other people going through. So they probably are remembered more by the security agents as a, as, as a, and encoded deeper into their memory. So when you're asked who's the problem, they're the ones that come top of mind. So all the work that was done to translate the security information into different language up front was not going to work because it was solving the wrong problem ultimately. It wasn't a problem to be solved. What we were able to do... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Um, and I can't, can't speak too much about the rest. Is... um is to look at what the real problems were and then to solve for, hopefully, ultimately solve for those. But they're just an example there of we can't just throw surface level behavioral science at problems. The sticky problems that the other traditional toolkits haven't solved need, often needs a deeper approach, which I think is much more aligned with being a detective. Love it. And I, I love that example and that's sort of why there was such a need for insight. I, I think I fall in the don't remember camp, I have to say. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> that's where you're claiming. <laughs> I think the other thing is often people think it can be things can be solved by a single nudge, as they say. But I actually think often it can be more sort of a complex set of interventions that need to be employed. What do you think, Dan? I think that we are the problem. I think what happened is <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> for this kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so um, I think ultimately we started telling the story all of the popular science books that came out and a lot of the early applied behavioral scientists talking about their work to get attention and to cut through the noise crafted the stories in a way that that um talk about silver bullets you know there's this one thing the fly in the urinal that gets the guy to focus harder blah 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 and there are some silver bullets out there and we've got some really and as as were you lots of interesting case studies where it pretty much is a silver bullet. But, you know, we've done thousands of projects with hundreds of clients, and most of them aren't silver bullets. Most of them are a deeper human insight gets to more novel intervention that, that is measured and creates impact, um, which is different to, uh, to the fly in the urinal example. So we were working with Adobe um, on their Creative Cloud subscription, and we know subscriptions have big highs and big lows. Big highs is that give you steady revenue. The big lows is you have a retention challenge kind of all, always on. And so we're working with a call center to figure out what can we say so that when someone calls in wanting to cancel, what's our best thing we can say to them to give ourselves the best chance of saving them? 
And they'd used a lot of financial incentives before. You get kind of 25% off instantly for three months, and then you go back to your regular pricing plan. And that was enough to save a lot. But we're kind of bribing people rather than persuading people out of you know, as a retention strategy. And we wanted to see if we used behavioral science, could there be some language that the agents can use to make their job of saving people a lot easier? And it sounds like a silver bullet, um, but then I'll, I'll tell you the real story behind. So the silver bullet version is, um, we, rather than asking why the customer is looking to leave, which gets them to mentally reinforce all the reasons why they want to go, makes it very hard for the agent to save them. We changed the first question we asked them to be, why were you looking to join Adobe's Creative Cloud subscription in the first place? Get them to mentally prime themselves all the reasons why their original intentions and goals. So the agent can have a conversation with you about how they save you, ultimately to really take away this, this kind of negative negative priming within the call. When we did that, we had um, was an 8% um, increase in retention just by adding changing that first sentence in the call that's sent out. Now, that's the silver bullet version. The longer version of the story is we tested five out. We had a, a, they have a very large team in India where we were doing the project. We had different teams. We had a control and we had four conditions. And for six weeks, they all tried out different um, nudges. And then we looked at which was most successful, and there was an overwhelming clear winner. And then and we rolled it out. So I think we have to be very careful when we're telling our stories and when we're marketing behavioral science to use the entertainment value and the, the hook value of a silver um, bullet framing but then to also tell the full story so people know that behavioral science isn't just flick a nudge in there and the world changes. Because otherwise, when people try that and it doesn't work, they will not be as enamored by the methodology as we would like them to be ultimately. Sometimes an even bigger challenge is that often how to intervene, how to solve the problem isn't tangible. You might have the insight, but how to sort of make it clear how to actually sort of intervene again is, is probably something that can sometimes be missing. Clients sometimes come to us because they've again done a bis- bit of basic understanding about you know behavior change and, and it's not been made real and tangible enough for them. And like you say, the complexities of it, the deep understanding of it hasn't been translated into a course of action. You know, how do we get from those insights that we're talking about to that strong action? And this is obviously a question that, that depends on the structure of the organization, the size of the organization, the culture of the organization. How do we make these things tangible for people? Well, a lot of the time, it's, I think it's about using existing lookalike cases. There's a really interesting phenomenon that we found, which is an organization is much more enamored to the idea that behavioral science can be a supercharger for their growth once they've seen it happen three times within their organization doesn't seem to be after foot one, doesn't seem to be after two. An analogous case studies within the sector doesn't always always seem to be as convincing either. It's one of those really interesting disciplines that needs to be seen to be believed and often kind of seen three times to be believed. So I think we usually get very good traction within an organization once we've managed to show it on kind of homegrown turf. So I think there's kind of there's a real concreteness effect there of, of showing it at working and really measuring the impact along the way. And then the other thing is... Um, making sure that um, we're often bringing in more than behavioral science into an organization when we're solving a problem. We're bringing in lots of soft skills about how to manage stakeholders. We're bringing in lots of creative culture on how to get people to think differently. We're um, also bringing lots of that rigor that goes wider than behavioral science. There's lots of kind of great techniques that 
um, consultancies use and, and research firms use to, to decode what's going on ultimately. And so really, I think it's about appreciating the blend of skill sets and, and really trying to identify what's missing from an organization. Once we get that right, and the more time we spend looking for that, the better, that's when the solutions that we bring in are much more effective because you can have the best idea in the world, but if you haven't understood how to get it through the organization and how to get it through the right stakeholders, then it's ultimately as pointless of not having the idea. I really like that. And we often say the same thing. And I think that's the benefit of working with the likes of Kantar and Ogilvy is the ability to sort of blend. You've got sort of, we've got innovators and data sets. You've got sort of, you know, other creatives and, and people who understand the businesses. And I think you're right. It's really important that bring that wider sort of, as you say, we're just one of the seats at the table. But the great thing is we can bring the other seats to the table as well and, and make that work for clients. So I think that that's lovely, Dan. How do we make behavioral science practical to those who haven't tried it two or three times? And I know you said lookalike cases is a, is a really good example, but you know what examples have you got in practice to really bring behavioral science to life? Ultimately, the foot in the door effect is, is one of the strongest tools we have here to get into an organization, which is starting small, starting more immediate. So, you know, sometimes the projects that we work on, Nikki, can be measured over a a very long time span, kind of one year plus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes we get things that can show demonstrations of working within weeks. And so we tend to prioritize the projects that get that that fast results. Because once you have something concrete and tangible, once we get to those kind of three case studies, it gets the right attention within an organization, it gets the right confidence, and it allows the client to move kind of further up the behavioral science maturity curve as something that really does drive growth rather than the biggest flaw of behavioral science is that it's interesting. I'm convinced that if behavioral science wasn't as interesting as a field, <laughs> it wouldn't be as distractive in an organization. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it can get, it can be characterized as something that's interesting and marginal, but actually a lot of the effects can be massive. Exactly. Um, so I think that, that that's one of the, if we can make behavioral science less interesting, that's probably a good strategy for, for, for ongoing. Um, so yeah, ultimately it's about fast wins, quick wins to get the um, confidence of the organization. And then I think the world's a oyster. Brilliant. I'm conscious of time, Dan. It's been uh, brilliant to speak to you. But one final question. Uh, any other top tips or words of wisdom to impart for us, Dan? One of my favorite things to think about is where are we making false assumptions? We go through life so fast. We go through our work so fast. And we, the more experienced we get, the more likely we are to be having lots of false assumptions. So it's actually, if you've just started your job, you haven't done everything a million times, you haven't made all these mental shortcuts, get, get a bunch of years in and you start to realize that you're kind of leaning on lots of things that you think are true. And the best game you can play with yourself is testing, a bit like a Jenga game. You just, you kind of tap the blocks a bit, see which ones are loose and which ones aren't. Just see where we're making some false assumptions. There's a really interesting thing we do called persuasion testing. And it's a really, um, re really fun game to play, which is often brands know their brand principles, they'll know their experience principles, they'll know who they are and what they want to communicate, but they haven't always defined their persuasion strategy. They haven't actually said, how are we going to get people to do so? Is it, for example, we do a great, great piece of work with KFC, which is looking at how do you reframe $1 chips? Um, we can't change the amount of chips that we offer, we can't change the price, it's in the name. But how do we frame that? And we did a range of different um, persuasion strategies that we tested based on behavioral science. So we tried social norming, you know, the idea that, you know, you know, the, the, we like to see what people like ourselves do. So do we say everyone's favorite chips? 
chips for one dollar, come and buy them? Or do we say loss aversion and say it's not going to be around forever? Or do we say um, reciprocity? Or do you know, all these different principles? Or do we say anchoring? You know, humans love targets. So if we said maximum four per person. Is that going to be the most powerful one? Really great game to play is share a room full of people which one, and ask them which one thinks is going to work. And they basically vote quite randomly because we don't have a very good persuasion radar. We don't know what persuades people. We don't know, the clients don't know, the customers don't know. We don't have access to those parts of the brain that are making the decisions. You run the tests, you find out that it's anchoring, surprisingly, that maximum four per person is the thing that drives the most sales. So that line was put into the TV and radio campaign and, and uh, had a, a over 50% increase in chip sales, which is amazing, um, just by getting the right persuasion strategy. And so, but that is one of those areas where we frequently guess that step. And I think the biggest piece of advice would be guess less. And so test where you can. You can't test everything all the time, but try and find out where you're making those false assumptions. Try and find out where you're not thinking enough and do a bit more thinking there and that will pay off dividends. Brilliant. Lovely. Thank you ever so much for joining me today. And I know you said you're worried about following Rory. You've done a brilliant job and you've done yourself proud as you, as you said you would, Dan. So yeah, lovely to chat to you today. Thank you. You too, Nikki. You've been listening to Future Proof from Kantar and Side Business School. For all episodes and more information, visit kantar.com or oxfordfutureofmarketing.com. If you enjoyed this, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. 